Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Sass Elisha. And I'm Jeremy Heiner. And we are very thankful that you are tuning in to listen to another one of our podcasts and episodes. And this is going to be a good one today. We're going to talk about pharmacology, and we're going to hope that the information that you hear today, you can actually take into the operating room and improve the care for your patients. All right. So, yep, we uh, know your time's important, so we're going to get right to it. It is go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. Okay, so as Sass mentioned earlier, we are going to talk about vasopressors today, specifically push-dose vasopressors. So most of us are administering push-dose vasopressors for hypotension in the operating room during anesthesia. And what's interesting, and Sass and I were talking about this, is that we're, we're doing it more often now than in the past. And Sass, do you think this is maybe because of electronic charting? I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I also think it's because people are always wary of, you know, poor neurologic outcomes, but also very wary of legal ramifications too. Yeah, that makes sense. So the push-dose vasopressors that we'll talk about today, we're going to talk about, of course, phenylephrine. That's probably the most commonly used one during anesthesia. We'll talk about ephedrine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Yeah, so old people like me, when the blood pressure would go down, what we would do is we would decrease our anesthetic depth, we give fluid, and we wait for the blood pressure to naturally come up unless the patient had a significant cardiovascular or neurovascular history. However, if we give a scenario associated with hypotension to a new student who's learning presently in the hospitals, um, many times they'll get one or two blood pressures that, you know, even if there is not significant hypotension, they're wanting to give vasopressors. And when I tell the same students that we're making educated assumptions, assuming that the amount of mean arterial pressure is adequate enough to perfuse the cerebral and cardiac circulation, 
they're always amazed. What do you mean you're making an assumption? Well, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty common in the OR that uh, in order to treat low blood pressure, we'll use a vasopressor, most commonly something like phenyl, phenylephrine. But maybe sometimes we're also hesitant to significantly decrease the concentration of inhaled agent because we're worried about the possibility of recall. Even though that is a rare complication, it's still a very real fear that anesthesia providers have. And in addition, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the electronic medical record, and that's capturing data such as the MAC value um, and the concentration of volatile anesthetics on the medical record. And as Sass mentioned earlier, there are potential legal ramifications if this ever comes out in a court case. Right. So like everything, everything is cost benefit or pro and con. So has anyone stopped to think about evaluating this practice of giving vasopressors immediately when someone, even someone who is healthy, becomes mildly hypotensive? Is rapidly treating hypotension with vasopressors, is it always beneficial for the patient? Is there a cost with giving phenylephrine? And as Jeremy said, today in current anesthesia practice, phenylephrine is the most commonly used push-dose vasopressor. By increasing systemic blood pressure with phenylephrine, is there a possibility that we could cause cerebral ischemia or also have problems with the heart and increase myocardial oxygen consumption? All right, so now let's get into it. We're going to talk about, we're going to start out by talking about normal physiology. So this is with no anesthesia. When hypotension occurs, there is peripheral vasculature that constricts, but the coronary and cerebral arteries vasodilate, and this is so that they will maintain a steady blood flow state to both the heart and the brain. Now remember that the coronary and cerebral arteries, the autoregulation is occurring within these organs. There's the autoregulation curves in both of these organs. When the MAP is decreased, the vascular in both organs dilates in order to maintain this autoregulation at a steady blood flow state. Now there are alpha-1 receptors on the cerebral and coronary arteries. So giving a vasopressor with significant alpha-1 agonist effects inhibits the compensatory vasodilation of both coronary and cerebral arteries when hypotension occurs. And this potentially could increase the risk of ischemia. Perfect. And that's a perfect segue into what we're going to talk about next. We're going to talk about the different vasopressors that we use. You had just mentioned alpha-1 receptors. The prototypical alpha-1 agonist is phenylephrine. It's synthetic, as we know. It is pure alpha-1. It has no beta effects. It is a very potent vasoconstrictor, and it does what you just said. It causes peripheral vasoconstriction, but also vasoconstriction in the central areas, central tissue beds, such as the coronary arteries and the cerebral arteries. And what's most important in anesthesia, we always say, is always the heart and the brain, right? Those are the two organs we're most concerned with. That's what, what we want to perfuse. Right. And what yeah. are we doing? Potentially decreasing the perfusion. Norepinephrine. So norepi also a very potent alpha 
uh, alpha-1 agonist and vasoconstr vasoconstrictor. However, it also has beta effects. In equal potent doses, it is less potent as a vasoconstrictor as compared to phenylephrine. Epinephrine. So epi is more beta as compared to alpha, more beta-1 effects if we're talking about the heart. So therefore, you notice that with small doses of epinephrine, you're going to get a very dramatic increase in heart rate, but you also have some vasoconstrictive effects, which also does bring up the blood pressure. Now, I just talked about norepi and epinephrine. Some of you are thinking, no, that's not true. When I give large doses of epi or norepi to my patients, maybe they're coding, I get all alpha effects. And that's true. When you give very large doses, like ACLS doses, that's true. The alpha effect will overwhelm the beta effect. But we're not talking about giving large doses of push-dose norepi or epi. And we're going to talk about the doses that are equivalent to phenylephrine. Next, ephedrine. We use this, both alpha and beta effects, but we know that it's going to dramatically increase the heart rate. And therefore, if someone's heart rate is already increased, many times we're going to stay away from ephedrine. Now, there is significantly more research in terms of vasopressor infusions when we're giving these vasopressors as infusions as compared to bolus doses. But we're going to talk about some of the research that's out there in terms of push-dose vasopressors. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Okay, so let's let's look at everything from this scenario here. So you're providing general anesthesia for a patient with a following history. Patient is 75 years old and is female, has a history of hypertension, diabetes, mild aortic stenosis, and a history of a CVA. Her pre-op mean arterial pressure is 74 millimeters of mercury. After induction and intubation, her MAP decreases to 54 millimeters of mercury and her heart rate increases to 74. You administer 100 micrograms of phenylephrine. So Jeremy, what are your, this is common practice. What are your thoughts on that? All right, so first and foremost, we have a significant drop in the mean arterial pressure. Uh, from 74 down to 54. And that's significant, especially for a patient who has hypertension, has a history of CVA, and um, even some aortic stenosis. So we don't like that drop in blood pressure. So like you mentioned, it's pretty common to administer a vasopressor 
immediately after this to increase the blood pressure. So I'm first and foremost concerned about that significant MAP decrease. Now, we talked about our history. Aortic stenosis, the hypotension, can increase the heart rate, resulting in decreased stroke volume and increased myocardial oxygen consumption. The fact that she has both neurologic disease and some hypertension means I'm concerned about perfusion to both the heart and the brain. So in addition to giving her uh, the phenylephrine, I would also decrease my anesthetic depth. I'd give her a fluid bolus, and my tolerance for letting that blood pressure ride at that level of 54, MAP of 54, would probably just be limited to one or two more blood pressure checks within one to two minutes. I really do want to increase that MAP value. So your goal is to increase her blood pressure ensure oxygenation to her brain and to her heart. Is that correct? That's exactly right. All right. So let's look at a little bit of science and let's see what's actually happening. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's look at some of the research that's out there. Sass, what's the first article we're going to talk about? So we are going to have all of these articles in our show notes for you. And the first one is by Thail. It's uh, And the article is The Physiologic Implications of Isolated Alpha-1 Adrenergic Stimulation. So as we know, pure alpha-1 agonists increase arterial blood pressure, but neither animal nor human studies have ever shown pure alpha-1 agonism to produce favorable changes in terms of myocardial, and this is what they call energetics, because of the increased myocardial workload. Remember, as you're causing peripheral vasoconstriction, you're going to dramatically increase afterload. So theories as to how phenylephrine decreases, decreases cerebral oxygenation despite increasing the pressure are alpha-1 vasoconstriction causes constriction of cerebral arteries. It decreases cardiac output because it increases afterload and can decrease cardiac output very significantly up to 20 to 30%, especially in people like in our patient that I just provided to you who may not have a very healthy heart. Lastly, there's something called a myogenic response, which is cerebral artery vasoconstriction due to increases in blood pressure. Great. So our next article was by Larson, and this was a systematic review. It looked at the effects of phenylephrine on cerebral artery saturation and cardiac output in adults when used to treat interoperative hypotension. And what they reported after looking at at all the review articles was that phenylephrine consistently decreased cerebral oxygen saturation values despite simultaneously increasing mean mean arterial pressures to a normal range. Ephedrine and dopamine were superior to phenylephrine in maintaining or increasing blood pressure values. Phenylephrine was found to be similar to vasopressin in the extent to which both decreased cerebral oxygen. And phenylephrine resulted in statistically significant declines in cardiac output, which I find very interesting because this is the vasopressor that we consistently and primarily use to increase blood pressure when we see that that low value on our monitor. Yeah. So here's another study. I'm just going to talk to you about the findings of this study by Meng. And here's one of the findings, phenylephrine, but not ephedrine, decreased cardiac output and 
cerebral oxygenation. And again, this highlights the importance of cardiac output in preserving cerebral oxygenation during management of intraoperative hypotension. So people have, you know, always, you know, interestingly said, well, if we're giving lots of phenylephrine, why are, why isn't the rate of CVA or MI, why isn't it significantly higher? Remember, if we're providing anesthesia, what is anesthesia doing to the brain and also to the heart? Decreasing the metabolic demands. So anesthesia is going to help us not cause cerebral and cardiac ischemia, but at the same time, some of our treatments to bring up the blood pressure could certainly exacerbate that. Yeah, and our purpose in talking about this topic today is not to villainize phenylephrine because I'll tell you, I use my fair share of phenylephrine, but it's also primarily just to get us to think about what we're doing. And are there other options out there? Now, the studies we're talking about, they're using very advanced techniques to monitor cerebral oxygenation and so forth, and stuff that we don't routinely use in the operating room. But maybe, just maybe, there are better options out there. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. All right, so another study was done by Nissen, and this was comparing phenylephrine to ephedrine and looking at frontal lobe oxygenation um, following anesthesia-induced hypotension. And what they reported was that 100 micrograms of phenylephrine increased blood pressure to the same degree as 10 milligrams of ephedrine. And and that seems pretty reasonable. I've, I've seen that in the OR. Um, now, what they also reported was that phenylephrine to correct hypotension induced by anesthesia did have a negative effect on cerebral oxygenation, while ephedrine maintained frontal lobe oxygenation related to the increases in cardiac output, and that, that's the reason why. So in this particular study, they saw a decrease in frontal lobe oxygenation with the use of phenylephrine. Recently, and this was in October of last year, the ANA Journal course came out with an article, and the title of the article was The Safety and Efficacy of Peripherally Administered Norepinephrine During the Perioperative Period. And what it does, this article, is it looks at other studies and compares push-dose phenylephrine to push-dose norepinephrine. And what it does is it reviews the current research about how effective norepinephrine is as a vasoconstrictor without significantly impairing cerebral and cardiac oxygen requirements. So some of the background in terms of administering norepinephrine peripherally in an IV is the concern that if it infiltrates into the tissue, it could cause tissue ischemia and tissue necrosis. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. So let me ask you a question. It would cause tissue necrosis if it got into the tissue because of the alpha-1 vasoconstrictive effects, correct? Correct. Now, what about phenylephrine having as potent vasoconstrictor effects? Why aren't we concerned? I know we are, but why aren't there huge studies or concerns related to phenylephrine and the extravasation into tissue? So the concern is valid. However, we have to look at the equal potency between the vasopressors because usually the fear with norepinephrine is from infusions. And you're going to get a lot more, uh, you're going to get a lot more medication that's going to be infiltrating into peripheral tissue in an infusion than you would with just an equal potent dose, uh, you know, one time push dose vasopressor. And then just to finish up our discussion on the incidence of extravasation of norepinephrine, in this article, in this journal course, the author looked at a combination of observational studies and retrospective charts and systematic reviews and showed that in tens of thousands of patients, both peripheral bolus dosing and long-term administration of norepinephrine resulted in low rates of extravasation. So we're talking like less than 1%. And there were no instances of long-term injury. All right, so now, SAS, how should we administer norepinephrine, both as a push-dose vasopressor and as an infusion? Yeah, so certainly as an infusion because of what you just talked about and, you know, significantly greater doses over time, an infusion certainly should go through a central line. However, if we're talking about push-dose, it could either go through a central line or an adequately functioning peripheral IV. So something large bore in, in the periphery. Yep. Okay, fantastic. And in addition, I also know in Europe, they've been using peripheral norepinephrine push dose push doses during perioperative anesthesia care for over a decade. Now, Jeremy, why don't you talk to us about the concentration of norepinephrine as compared to phenylephrine? Yeah, this is important. So if we start using push-dose norepinephrine boluses, then it needs to be at the right concentration. So a lot of times when you get a bag of norepinephrine from the pharmacy, it'll come in 32 micrograms per milliliter. And so what we'll do in order to dilute that down to a push-dose is dilute it down to either 16 micrograms per milliliter or even better, 8 micrograms per milliliter. And an 8 microgram per milliliter bolus dose has an equivalency to about 100 mics of phenylephrine. So when you look at it, norepinephrine is about 10 times more potent than phenylephrine. So the summary associated with this journal course shows that norepinephrine for the treatment of intraoperative hypotension is not only acceptable, but in many cases may be the best option. And for the reasons that we talked about, A, it preserves cardiac output, um, and B, it does not have significantly tremendous uh, vasoconstrictive effects in both the heart and the brain. So yeah, as moving forward, I think we're going to start seeing more facilities use bolus doses, push doses of norepinephrine instead of phenylephrine. Yeah, you have to look at the science and you have to look at what is best for patients. And sometimes, and you know, old people like me, we certainly know 
things that we were taught. We were taught, well, this is the way we do it, and we always do it this way without thinking about what are the physiologic consequences? How is this affecting the patient? And as we continue to progress and improve and become more complex in anesthesia and healthcare and in science, we need to change our practice in order to reflect these improvements. All right, everyone. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us today during this episode. And as always, if you've liked what you've heard and you want to help us grow, consider leaving a positive review and or even just talking about it with your anesthesia friends. Share the episode with them. Word of mouth is the primary way that this podcast grows. Okay, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. Keep ventilating and we'll catch up with you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.